Your Partner in Success Radio is a free business podcast with host Denise Griffiths. It's all about great stories, conversation, and context to help you move your business and life forward with actionable tips and advice from her guest experts. To listen and subscribe, just find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Welcome to your Partner in Success Radio. I'm your host, Denise Griffiths, and this podcast is ranked in the top 2% of the most popular podcasts globally. And honestly, it's all because of the truly incredible people who show up to share their information and spend time with our audience, and they are at the top of their game, and they're passionate about helping you achieve your goals in both your life, you know, your personal and professional lives. My guests hold nothing back. They really do show up here to share the secrets of peak performance. And I know you'll find their insights both inspiring and actionable. So take notes, sit back, relax, and get ready to take your life and business to the next level. So today our topic is resilience and reflection, an insider's perspective on financial crisis and leadership challenges. And I get to welcome back to the show today Peter De Silva. He's a seasoned professional who has held prestigious C-level positions at TD Ameritrade, Scott Trade, UMB Financial Corporation, and Fidelity Investments. And with firsthand experience of the financial leadership crisis that shook our country and, frankly, the rest of the world, Peter offers an invaluable insider's view into the challenges that we're facing, and in many ways we continue to face them. But his unique perspective extends far beyond his professional accomplishments. As a university, a Harvard University senior fellow, he has delved deep into the realms of leadership and personal growth. And his contributions as a board member to private companies and nonprofit organizations further demonstrate his commitment to making a positive impact. But this is important. What truly sets Peter apart is his lifelong struggle with a debilitating disease. And through the lens of his own personal journey, he has developed an exceptional understanding of resilience, perseverance, and the human spirit. So his unwavering determination and unique insights make him a voice that you simply cannot afford to miss. Peter, welcome back to your Partner in Success Radio. It's good to have you here. Thanks, Denise. It's great to be back with you again today. Well, we you were here just a couple of months ago, and honestly, within 10 minutes, I knew that I needed you to come back. And I, you know, put you on, on the spot on the radio, which I always do. I was, oh, we're not going to make it. Can you come back? I do it on the radio, so you can't tell me no. It's very tricky. But here you are, <laughs> so thank you for that. Glad to be here, for sure. Listen, tell us a bit about you that you really – need people to know, and what you want to talk about today. Because I know inside the book, you share 10 essential life and leadership principles. And we're going to talk about those a bit. But introduce yourself back to the audience, if you would. Sure, sure. Happy to do that. So, hello, everyone. Um, You know, I I am uh, a 35-year financial services executive with a fair amount of leadership experience, for sure, uh, I would say, though, what more importantly than that, I'm a, I'm a husband of 33 years, my wife, Michelle, I'm a dad to two great daughters, uh, Christine and Sarah, um, and I'm a community champion, somebody who cares deeply about the plight of others. And those are the, some of the attributes that matter, probably even more than whatever uh, modicum of business success I might have enjoyed over, over time. Um, you know, today, I think we want to pick up where we left off last time. Uh, we went through some of the some of the leadership principles the last time we were together, and we can certainly talk about that as well. Uh, one of the things I tried to outline in the book is, is a little bit about the financial crisis and some of the causes of that, and, and they weren't quite as obvious as, as some might as some might believe. Uh, and also, you know, I've been in search of what is the right eternal definition for leadership. Right? There's been th- thousands of books written on leadership, thousands of definitions uh, suggested. And I've been in search of the best one, won't be perfect, but the best one I could find. And maybe we could talk a bit about that this morning as well. Absolutely. So, listen, I am going to get out of your way and let you run with it because, like I said earlier, we, 
we just ran out of time, and I don't think I was interrupting too too much. I try not to, <laughs> but when when I have a guest show up that just has so much to share, one podcast episode is just not going to do the trick. So why don't I let you start wherever you want to start, and I'll pop in with questions or observations. Sounds great. Sounds great. Well, let's let's spend a minute talking about seminal event that occurred just a little over a decade ago, which was the financial crisis of 2008-2009. And we all recognize fully how debilitating that was on individuals, families, and uh, the economy at large, both domestically and globally. It was a big, big, big event and quite disruptive in many ways. And, you know, you can look at all the articles and books that have been written about that, and, and they'll talk about, correctly so, they'll talk about the fact that we, we got a little overextended as an economy, that people were in mortgages they never could never could afford to service, um, and they were really built on this faulty assumption that the value of the collateral, that the value of the home would always rise, and so there'd be enough equity there in order to service the loan or at least pay the loan off in the event that, that things got stressed and stressful. But you know what? What we learned is that even though home prices do go up generally, they don't always go up. And when interest rates rise at the same time that home prices fall, you end up in this very difficult situation where you have this increase in the cost of financing at the same time that the cost of the value rather of the collateral was falling. So it was really a very complicated uh, series of events that led us into that, into that crisis. And there were many more issues uh, out of Wall Street and the regulatory framework and such that failed us in some in some respects. Um, but I, there was another dimension to this that I think gets overlooked, and that is this idea that, you know, individuals ultimately make decisions. Individuals, whether they're consumers, make decisions about the level of debt that they want to carry. Businesses and banks and, and other financial companies make decisions about the level of risk that they want to take and such. But ultimately, those risks, those decisions are made by, by people. And I've been studying this for quite some time, and what I've concluded is that there were three pressures that were building and that were in contention with each other while this uh, bubble rose and ultimately while it, while it came apart. And so those three pressures are the pressure of expediency, the pressure of performance, and the presper, uh, pressure of, of aspiration. So what do I mean? So let's just decompose that for a second. What is expediency? Expediency is this idea that, you know, we, we want to do things very quickly. Um, we want results instantly. And in this digital age we live in, uh, we all want expediency. When we hit enter on an email, we expect it to be received within, within a few seconds. Uh, texts are even, are even more so that, that way. So there's this idea that, you know, expediency is at the, is at the root, if you will, of a lot of behaviors in our organization. And by the way, that means that you might be willing to cut corners, right, in order to, in order to get those quick results. Then there's this idea of performance, right, that, that we all need to achieve higher and higher and higher levels of performance. And if you think about that in the context, again, of, of, of banks and financial companies, they might take imprudent risks in order to improve their performance in the near term which could hurt them in the long term. And so this idea of needing this performance, uh, this level of performance, high level of performance is something that I was, uh, was been thinking a lot about. And then lastly, there's this idea of aspiration. We all have aspirations. We all have goals for ourselves, for our organizations, for our families. Um, and sometimes those aspirations can get in the way of making good decisions as well. So you put these three forces together, expediency, performance, and aspiration, and all of a sudden, you get yourself into an environment, potentially at least, uh, where, where we were in 2008, where those three forces combined in order to create this idea that, you know what, we're, we're going to take these imprudent risks. We're, 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 and by the way, the risks were taken by the banks, but they were also taken by consumers for sure. Um, and that became, that became the tension that was there. At the end of the day, this was a failure of leadership. This was a failure um, in the sense that there was a lot of greed, there was a very short-term orientation, um, and, and those were the sort of issues that were underpinning the, the crisis we all experienced in 2008 and beyond. You know, I remember we talked about 2008, and all I could offer was I remember. I live in southwest Louisiana, and we're, we're, you know, this is oil field country. You know, there's a yeah. lot of yeah. – we're in the Gulf. I mean, we're immersed in it. 
And I remember seeing more and more bumper stickers that were very pointed in their message. And they said, last person out of the state, turn the lights off. They weren't kidding. We lost a lot of people, mostly to Atlanta. I don't know why they went to Atlanta, but they did. Yeah, you know, I, I don't think you were alone in that in that regard. No. It was a very scary time. It was a time where individuals and families and businesses and organizations were really trying to figure out what the future held for them. Um, and, you know, not unlike the pandemic. If you think about the pandemic, the, the, the thing I would argue is very different is the pandemic was global, certainly, um, but it was unpredictable. I mean, it just happened almost overnight. Uh, where we had to cloister ourselves in our homes and in our businesses, and we shut down the economy, which we've never really done before. I mean, that was that was just what an experience that we'll tell our kids and grandkids for for decades to come about how the United States literally shut itself down, and and the world shut itself the down. The world, because of, right. Yeah, right. And so, you know, so those things are going to happen, um, and, and what's important is how you respond to them. Uh, because we could not have predicted the pandemic. It was really how we responded to it as individuals, as families, as society uh, that really that really mattered. And we're still responding to it. I mean, I will go online and see people still wearing masks, which boggles my mind. It really does. But, yeah, it's a well, personal Well, yeah, funny choice. what's happened. We were talking earlier offline about the, the smoke that we have here in New England and, and the Northeast right now. Um, and so masks are back <laughs> for a different reason. But uh, I would say a, a higher percentage now are, are wearing masks until this air gets cleared up here in the, in the Northeast. Well, see, that makes sense to me, though. I mean, you would see that in China and very, very populated countries where, you know, they, they will wear masks because of the really poor quality air and really no other reason. That's exactly correct. It's exactly correct. Well, now we're a victim of it, hopefully just temporarily, um, but you do see lots of masks at the moment, you know? Well, yeah, like I said, uh, you know, that would not have me raising my eyebrows. I would probably be looking for one as well, and I'll be honest with you, I've never worn a mask in my life. You know, even during the pandemic, I my groceries come to my door. I really don't get out there much, and if I do... You know, I'm just, I'm going to go to where I don't have to wear a mask, but, and truthfully, I can't. I have a, a lung issue that doesn't allow me to block my airway, so there's mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. but but still, you know, life has changed just in the last, well, since 2008, and forward, life has changed in ways that so many of us, we simply don't recognize how life used to be for us, and so many of us, me included, don't we're still wondering what the heck happened. And here's the question, what don't we know? So, and going back to what you're talking about, individuals, you know, leadership is also in the home. You need to educate yourself. You need to find out what you don't know and make those decisions. You can't just knee-jerk yourself through life. It doesn't work. I think you're spot on. You know, I, I like to say that, Decision-making is is both um, analytical, quantitative, and qualitative, right? And so when you make decisions, I always ask this first question I always ask is, okay, if we have an important decision to make, what are the incontrovertible facts? What do we know to be absolutely true about the situation or the environment or whatever it is that we're, that we're, we're talking about? Okay, so once you have your fact base, that's not enough. It shouldn't be enough. You then have to think about because facts are always backward-looking, right? I mean, data is always backward-looking. Projections are forward-looking, but projections are pretty much void of data. I mean, we don't know really know what the economy is going to do tomorrow. We know what it did yesterday. We pretty much know what it's doing today, but we really don't know what's, what's going to happen tomorrow. Because it's such a complex, multivariable equation, it's almost impossible to know. But the first thing when making, I think, any life or leadership decision is get the facts in front of you. Great. Then you certainly want to complement that with anecdotes, like what's happening now? What's going on in the environment today? You know, I could argue that the facts going into 2008 suggested we weren't going to have a crisis, right? I mean, things were going great. I mean, home ownership was at some of the highest rates uh, in history. There were very few delinquencies. Everything was looking terrific. But then one thing changed. Well, a lot of things changed. But one thing in particular, and that was interest rates began to rise. 
And all of a sudden, it put pressure on individuals when their homes were being refinanced and such, and they could no longer afford it. But you couldn't know that from the data. You could only know that by really watching what, what, was, going to, what was going on today. So you start with the fact base. You look at um, qualitative information, anecdotal information and such, and then you draw the best conclusion you can about what the future is going to look like. And here's what I do when I make a decision. I also ask me or my team, I ask, okay, we're going to make this call. What's the worst possible thing that can happen if we're wrong? If it turns out that we're wrong or something in the environment shifts or changes on us, what's the worst possible thing that can happen? If you're comfortable with that worst possible thing happening, then it's time to make that decision. Let's go. Um, if you're not, then probably need to think about it a little bit more. But there's one other dimension to this, Denise, that's really important. You also need to know if the worst possible thing happens, what action am I going to take? And be willing to take that action to make it right. Give me some examples. I think I know what you're talking about here, but from and I just wrote down working backwards. So, you know, you're basically we don't know what we're we're dealing with. A lot of times we are working backwards. I, the facts are not out there yet. We're sometimes just I use that term again, knee jerking ourselves, you know, through all kinds of things that we shouldn't be knee jerking about. So if you can give us a couple of, of case studies where you've had like, okay, this is the worst case scenario. But what's the next step if it blows up in our face? Well, I'll give you a couple. So, you know, in large organizations, you, you have to think about how you want to design the organization. And you spend some time thinking about who the people are, what the needs of the organization are, what the skills and abilities are, et cetera. Eventually, you, you draw up a plan and you put individuals into certain roles that you think they'll be successful at. But let's say you go ahead and you do that, and it becomes apparent that you know what, this was not the right idea. This was not the right approach to, to this particular design question. You've got to unravel it quickly. It's painful. It's painful to say, I made a mistake. You know, this individual isn't right for this role or this structure isn't right for this environment or whatever the case might be, but you have to unwind it and unwind it quickly. Otherwise, you do a much worse disservice to, to the organization more broadly. Let's talk about strategy. You know, organizations, of course, set strategies and directions for themselves, and you can't set it and forget it, as Ron Popeil used to say on, the, uh, on, on one of those shows. I mean, you can't just set it and forget it. You have to set it and monitor it. And so, again, you have to have the, the ability, the presence of mind, the willpower to say, you know what, I thought this was the right answer, but it's not, and let's adjust. Let's course correct. And it's very important that you're willing to, to acknowledge that you might have been wrong, that's a very important thing to do, uh, and then make the course corrections that are necessary. And that's true for both life and business. Absolutely. It may be more important in life because that's what we all I make think. decisions every day. Yeah, I mean, right, It's I think this job is right for me. And how many people six months in say, oh, my goodness, I made a mistake? Uh, one of my daughters did this not too, too long ago. She She's very entrepreneurial by nature. Um, but, you know, the economy was tough a few years ago. Jobs were scarce. And she's like, I think I want to be in a safer environment. I think I want to get into a bigger company that is a bit safer. It's a bit more stable. And so she took a job in a, in a large company. It was a great company. It is a great company. And within weeks, she realized she had made a mistake. She's like, you know what? It's great. It's wonderful. But it's everything I don't want. It's staid. It's bureaucratic. Um, it, decision making is, 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 is made from the top down, not from the bottom up. The culture is a little bit stale. And so she left. I said, you need to leave. You need to leave and you need to go back into that entrepreneurial world where you clearly want to be. But that took courage. It took courage to take that job and say, you know what, I'm going to try this because I think the environment calls for me to do it. But it took an equal or more amount of courage for her to leave within three months. She left and said, this isn't the right thing for me, and now she's a very happy entrepreneur again. Good for her. It is difficult. You know, those of us who are born entrepreneurs, we kind of, I've said this many times before, we have to have cast iron stomachs. We really do. Because we're going to take, we're going to fall on our butts a lot. We're going to make mistakes. We have to rewind, unwind, say, oh, geez, what the heck did I do? And, you know, take stock and fix it. And then there's people who want to be an entrepreneur, which I believe can be taught. 
But, you know, some are natural at it, like your daughter, like me. And some are like, I can do this. So you find the best people to teach you how to be an entrepreneur, what you need to know. But the thing is, if you're in a, an environment where you're just miserable or you, you feel like you're just kind of that person sitting at the back of the room and nobody notices you, get out. You're not doing anybody yeah. any good. You're, you're spot on, absolutely spot on. But it, it does take a measure of courage to do that. It does. And, and courage, yeah. I, I, courage I find it in short supply sometimes. Foolhardy is courage too, right? <laughs> I tell myself there you that. Go. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm courageous. No, I'm a fool, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> no, it's important to have a, a level of courage for sure. And, um, again, I think my daughter had it. And, and again, she's, she's super happy with what she's doing, doing presently she doing can you say um yeah i mean she she's a customer success manager for a technology startup up here in boston and you know they like most small tech companies have had some some challenges the last you know call it six months or so as companies are tightening their budgets and such uh, and this is a software kind of a software company um so she she called me the other night and she said i got good news and bad news i said oh she said the good news i said the bad news is you know, we had a layoff today. The good news is I got more stock. <laughs> so, oh. you know, she's clearly, okay. clearly doing something right and uh, is endearing herself to the, uh, to the organization. So that's, that's a good thing. Well, good for her. And that leads, and congratulations to her. And that leads me to something that we were talking about in the virtual green room. And that is something that you termed the awesome power of your personal mosaic and I'm guessing that she falls into that category. Yeah. So, you know, by way of uh, this backdrop, it, it's one of my beliefs, and I, I go through this in my book, Taking Stock, this idea that each life uh, is really a, a, a personal and professional mosaic, that every single day, every single interaction, every single encounter that you have helps to build this mosaic of your life, and that that mosaic hopefully gets more beautiful over time based upon the individuals that you come across and that every single person you touch from more of a transactional um, encounter to much more of deep relationships end up on your end up on your mosaic and that picture builds and builds and builds and it's a thing of beauty and the only time it's done is at your last breath because up until that time everyone everything every encounter is adding to that picture that is your that is your life and then when your life is over your gift your greatest gift to your friends and family is that mosaic that presentation of of yourself if you will um and you know i talk a lot about that every piece matters because think about this think about a jigsaw puzzle and think about getting to the end and there are three pieces missing are you frustrated by that? <laughs> I am. I hate when that happens, right? And because you can't see the complete picture. So how can you have your life assessed without having every single component on that mosaic, in that mosaic, and on that picture? And the answer is you can't. And so I encourage my readers, I encourage others to think about life that way and to draw lessons from every single encounter. Some lessons will be positive, like, hey, if I'm ever in that situation, I'm going to do it exactly like this person did. Some might be negative. If I'm ever in that situation, I will never act the way that person acted, as an example. But in either instance, it makes your mosaic stronger, deeper, more colorful, more beautiful, and more useful to you as you go through life. How did you come up with that term? I'm fascinated by it. I think it's a beautiful term. Yeah, you know, I'm not sure that it was one of those that I woke up one day and said, wow, life is a mosaic. Um, I've had the good fortune, though, of visiting some of the most beautiful churches, cathedrals, mosques in the world. And um, I was in the Blue Mosque in, in Istanbul one time. And you just look at the beauty of all these individual pieces that individually don't, don't say a lot to you, but when put together – it's just the awesome beauty is, is, is there. And you know there are stories behind each of those pieces. There's a cathedral in St. Louis, Missouri, um, and I forget the number, but it's tens of millions of pieces of glass that form these beautiful, beautiful images and beautiful pictures. Um, and so somehow I connected, 
my brain connected sort of those those images of mosaics with a life because a life is a is a lot of pieces and so it, and, and you know by the way some of the strongest parts of the mosaic aren't the success you've enjoyed but rather the failures you've had and you talked a little bit about that um, that we're all going to have failures in our life and the mosaic is made more beautiful by picking up those shards of glass those broken pieces of your life and putting them back together in this in this image of a mosaic and so so i'm not sure as i said that i woke up one day with this grand idea it sort of came to me over time by both observation and uh, and probably a bit of intuition thank you for sharing that i i actually have chills running up and down the back of my neck it's truly beautiful but i never thought of mosaics like that and i've seen you know a lot of glass art if you will and i've seen um you know windows and i recognize logically that yeah there's a lot of pieces there but it never occurred to me to say each piece is individual each piece has its own story each piece was maybe laid by the same person or a hundred people it doesn't matter it there's a story there hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of stories and you have to piece them all together and find out, even before your final day, what's working and what's not. What do I want to do That's again right. and what That's will right. I never do again? That's so right. And, you know, if you don't take the time to learn from your mistakes and your successes in life, then you're, you're doomed to repeat them, obviously. Um, I just believe there's value in every single life and that that, that value uh, is something that needs to be nurtured. Um, you know, I, I think a lot about, about vision and, and, and how organizations set vision, but people set vision too. They set it for themselves, for their families, for their lives. I encourage everyone to really sit down and think about what is the vision for my life or an alternative word that a lot of people like is purpose. What is the purpose of my, of my life? And I'll tell you a little story. Um, so one day there's this, this gentleman who's, who's walking by, um, walking by in a, in a city, just walking on the sidewalk. And he comes across the gentleman, and the gentleman is laying, laying bricks. He's just, he's just laying bricks. And so he asks the gentleman, he says, what are you, what are you doing? And he says, I'm, I'm laying bricks. I said, okay, cool. He goes in another few feet, and there's another gentleman laying bricks. And he says to that person, he says, what, what are you doing? And he says, I'm, I'm building a wall. He says, oh, okay, uh, that's okay. That guy's, that guy's building bricks, and this one's building a right. wall. Different perspectives, right? And he goes a little further, and he meets this third gentleman, and he says, what are you doing? And he says, I'm building a cathedral. And uh-huh. so the question really is, who had the vision? The gentleman who thinks he's just laying bricks, the gentleman who's building a wall, or the gentleman who's building a cathedral? He saw the vision. He understood that his actions were, were, were going to result in this thing of beauty. And for me – an individual needs to think that way as well. You can think that you're just laying a brick. You can think you're building a wall or you can build a cathedral. It's your choice. And you have to see it. As a web developer, I see, I build literally, I'll be standing over the stove making a gumbo. I like gumbo. But you know, cooking <laughs> for me is very creative. And I, you know, a lot of times I'm not, I don't use a recipe book. I just cook by the seat of my pants. I always have. So I'm not really thinking. I'm just cooking. It's creative. My, and I'm almost in a trance sometimes, which sounds dangerous, but I've done it forever, so it works. But I will often catch myself building an entire website while I'm standing over that stove or loading the dishwasher, whatever I'm going to do in the kitchen, and I can see it. I can see the colors. I can see the pages. I can see the navigation. I don't have to put it to paper, although I do. But I can see it in my head before I ever start the first step in building that website. So I really understand that, what you're talking yeah. about with the man in his cathedral. That That is perfect. Yeah, I, I have always found that to be a, a particularly helpful story uh, for, for me because I, I want to surround myself with people that want to build a cathedral. And whether that's in business, in life, whether that's family or friends, you want people who share the same outcome, who, who are looking to achieve the same, the same thing, if you will. And, um, you know, in business, I always sit down with my teams and say, okay, you know, we, we've got plans, we've got 
strategies, we've got actions, et cetera, but what's it all for? What is it exactly we are trying to achieve? And you put that in very colorful terms, you know, ways in which we can know when, know when we get there. You'll know when the cathedral is built and the doors are open. So it's the same with a business. You know, you'll know when you've had success, when you have raving fans for, for customers. Um, so anyways, I always, I always find that helpful. Have you always done this with your team? Was it something that was just instinctive to you, or did you learn it as you went? Definitely learned it as I as I went along. Um, you know, as a as a leader, as any leader, um, this is a process, not an event, to become a leader. Uh, it's both experiential, for sure. Experiences I've had, good, bad, positive, negative, have added to that mosaic, which is added to my leadership style uh, and mosaic. But this idea of, you know, leading by principles, this idea of setting setting a vision in place, this idea that enrolling people in the attainment of that vision, those are things I feel very, very strongly about. Well, that makes sense. Okay, if we're talking about cathedrals, we're talking about we have a beautiful cathedral here in Lafayette that, and I'm not Catholic, although I live in Catholic country, literally, um, but I will catch myself wandering into that cathedral just to sit. It's just so beautiful and so peaceful. I mean, yeah, those are some I, of the I most beautiful thing. places in the world, no matter where you are. So that leads me to my next question. You, we had talked earlier about the biblical definition of leadership found in First Corinthians. Can you share? Yeah, well, the truth is there is no leadership definition found in First Corinthians, at least as stated. Um, but over some period of time, it, it sort of came to me that maybe there was a hidden uh, a hidden message in there that we could we could tease out, and so you know when I was when I was married, like many uh, many Christian weddings, there's a there's a passage in in First Corinthians that is that is uh, that is read, and most of you will know it. If if not, uh, I'd be surprised. And it goes something like this: It goes that love is patient and, and love is kind, and oh. love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. And passage goes on and on. And it was read at our wedding 33 years ago, and I don't know why. Again, I don't know how, how some of these things uh, connect in one's brain, but one day I was sitting around and thinking about this topic of leadership and, and yearning for a universal definition that spoke to me. There are many wonderful definitions of, of leadership out there. I love some of Stephen Covey's work, for sure, uh, Bill George's work. I really like their work a lot, but it really didn't – Speak to me in a way that um, that I that I understood that really really worked for me, and so I don't know why again the forces of nature caused me to do this, but I said what happens if you change the word love the words love and it in this passage to the word leadership, and, and what would that sound like and what would that what would that mean? So I did it one day. This is about 20 years ago now, and it read that leadership is patient. And leadership is kind. And leadership is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. And then leadership does not insist on its own way. Leadership is not irritable or resentful. Leadership does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Leadership bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Leadership never ends. I was taken by that. And I want to be clear, not because of its Christian origin, not because of its, you know, that, that, that origin, because the words spoke to me instantly. And I remember sitting back in my chair saying, I think I've got it. <laughs> I didn't create it, but I think I've got it. I've got a definition of leadership that is universal and applicable in almost any setting. So in the book, um, in the afterword to the book, I actually decompose each of the phrases in this in this passage, and so things like leadership is patient. Um, you know, there is a sense of patience in leaders, but there has to be a sense of urgency. So I go through teasing out, you know, the, the conflict, if you will, between being patient but also operating with a sense of urgency. And I don't think the two are in conflict with each other. I think they're actually quite complementary. Leadership is kind. I mean, who could argue that? I mean, who could argue that? Yet people do. Oh, no, you've got to be a tough, tough guy to be a leader. No, you don't. 
no, you don't. You've got to be kind. You've got to be supportive. You've got to be helpful to everyone. Um, you know, leadership is not irritable or resentful. I, I agree. I agree. I try awfully hard not to wear my emotions on my sleeve, you know, because I don't want to come across as that way to, to individuals. Um, leadership never ends. I firmly believe that. It, you can't close the door on your office at the end of the day and say, okay, I'm no longer a leader when I go home to my family or I go into my community. I'm, I'm no longer a leader. I, I just put that aside, and tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock, I'll pick, that, I'll pick that back up again. No, it doesn't work that way. So the passage just spoke to me, and ultimately what, when you substitute the word leadership for the word love, um, what you have to reconcile, I think, is that it takes love to be a leader, and it takes a leader to, to love. Um, you have to put those two things together. So it's powerful to me. I offer it only as a suggestion for others um, to think about and consider whether they would embrace this definition as well. I've got the book in front of me. And the book that I have, by the way, is a draft. I don't know if the final version has different page numbers, but <clears throat> excuse me, I'm looking at page 222, and you talk about leadership as kind. And the first sentence Kindness and humility are the two most underrated and underappreciated elements of law, of strong leadership. Kindness is defined as the quality of being friendly, generous, and considerate. So who would not want to work with a leader who embodies these characteristics? Exactly. Uh, that's exactly right. And, again, there are different leadership styles out there. That's fine. There are different leadership styles sometimes for, for various uh, different events that happen. I'm not suggesting that, you know, you, you can't modify this slightly, but at the core, at its core, I believe that this definition is a great guidepost for budding leaders, for existing leaders uh, to really to really contemplate. And again, I, I, I decompose this whole passage in the book, and quite honestly, I don't have the energy probably to do it, but there's probably a whole book to be written just about this passage in the context of leadership. Honestly, you could have started the book with this. You really could have. I mean, I've read the well, whole you know, book. It, I've read it a couple of times. But this this whole section, the afterwards, is where I really went to town with my marker and my sticky notes. Well, you know what's interesting, Denise, is um, I actually got, it got a little contentious with my publisher who didn't want to use this material, which is why it ended up in the afterward. That was our negotiation that it would we'd, we'd drop it in the afterward um and she's phenomenal she was absolutely a great help to me but on this score she just felt like you know it doesn't connect with the rest of the book and i was like well i, I think it does connect bonnie and here's how it connects and we went through the the discussion as you might imagine and so ultimately she said okay if we're going to put it in i'm fine with it as an afterward and i said well i'll i'll agree with that but i'm i'm more with you i do think that as a kind of almost a preamble to the book, and if you read the exactly. book, what you'll find, you'll find in the book these principles not overtly stated, but they're they're in there. These these sort of these beliefs that I have, my style uh, was was formed in part by this passage. It's it's all through the book. It's just not stated. It is, and to our audience, I'm hoping that you'll go to Amazon. You'll get the book. You'll read the book. Start at page two twenty two. Like I said, it's a preamble. That's honestly, I mean, I read the whole book and then got here and went, well, what the heck? I should have already known this. I mean, I did pick it up, but I, I would have liked to have seen it at the front. I'm not your editor. You know, I, I get what she said that, but I really think it could have done better at the front of the book. So people would say, oh, okay. And then they would start looking for the not hidden points, but maybe not in your face points. And I wanted to go one more time, you know, one more uh, chapter here. Leadership does not exist, does not insist on its own way. And here's something that's very important. Most leaders are in leadership position because someone else believes that they possess the proper set of characteristics that enable them to lead others to levels of performance higher than if someone were the leader, someone else were the leader. So, and that's important as well. Yeah, that's a critically important part of it, you know. And this was this was something that happened to me in in my career, where you know I was I was pushed, I was prodded, I was put into positions probably before I was ready 
um, uh, in many in many ways. Uh, because others said, I think I think you can do this. I think you you've got the skills and abilities uh, to to do this. Those were scary moments for me, uh, but they supported me as well. This is a really important passage, part of the passage, because you know, leaders, good leaders, great leaders, I think, are open to other people's ideas. There are some leaders, maybe Elon Musk is an example, who's like, look, I know what I'm doing. I know where I'm going. Get on my train. If you want to ride, you got to ride in, in my train, and, and, and this is the way I'm going. Great. I think he's an exception. I think most leaders are somewhat insecure anyways and are searching for others to come along with them. And I just fundamentally believe you bring people along. You don't force anybody. You bring them along uh, with you, and you also remain open to the prospect that you might be wrong, <laughs> that, in fact, Somebody else has a better idea, a better way than you, and you have to be open to that. And one of the great attributes of excellent leaders is their, is their willingness to modify their own belief system when the facts and data suggest that they should. Absolutely. I think another big important part of being a leader is curiosity. You mm-hmm. have to be intensely curious. You have to take, You have to listen to other people. You know, find out what makes them passionate. You can't just sit in your your corner office and say, okay, everybody do what I tell you, and nobody gets hurt. You have to be very curious about the people around you, what's going on, how they can help you, how they can help the the business. I think that's something that's not talked about enough, curiosity. I couldn't couldn't agree more. I'll, I'll, I'll... Two, two short stories on that. So, you know, Hewlett Packard was was um, a much smaller company than it is today, 30, 40 years ago. Uh, they created something called MBWA, and it was called Management by Walking Around, literally. And that was the expectation that leaders would walk around the floor, uh, shop floor, they'd walk around the office, and they would talk to people. And they went so far as to prescribe a certain number of hours a week that you had to be out of your office, not in your office, out of your office, visiting with people on the floor, understanding their problems, out with clients, whatever the, whatever the, the, the need might be. And I always found that very, very powerful and actually adopted some of that into my own personal style and characteristics. And then when I worked at Fidelity Investments, you know, we had an amazing, amazing leader by the name of Ned Johnson. And um, I'll never forget this story. One day he came down to Cincinnati where I was, I was working at the time, and I was leading a, a function that was, um, that was having some difficulties. So long story short, he came down, and I did what we always did. We had this big presentation plan and a clinical conference room, and it was, you know, it was just going to be a few people. And within a few minutes he said, I just want to walk around. I'm curious what's going on, like, with the real people, not with you guys, uh, at the front line. And I Did was terrified. Steve Jobs do that as well. Steve Jobs. Steve was Jobs was famous for doing that as well. Right. Um, but I was terrified. I'm like, oh my goodness, he's going to go out and he's going to see all the problems that we have. And guess what happened? He went out and he saw all the problems that we had. But instead of coming back at the end of the day and saying, oh, this is terrible, he's like, look, I saw some really good things and I saw some things we need to work on. And that really struck me. That, oh, and by the way, one other thing happened which was really scary, but it worked out okay. Um, so when he got up to start his wandering around, I started to wander with him. And he said, no, 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 you, you don't need to be with me. I'm, I just want to be on my own, kind of seeing this without, without you being around me. And I was like, oh, my goodness, I guess I'm going to get fired. But he really just wanted to experience it in its natural way. And I just found that was so powerful. Did the people that he was observing or chatting with, did they know who he was? Yeah, everybody knew he was coming. You know, we had had the place cleaned. You know, we did all the things you do when you know a senior executive is coming. Right. And he just he just completely upended the uh, the apple cart. But candidly, I learned a lot just in that day alone. I'm like, you know what? I learned a lot in, in terms of how how to be curious to your point and and go out and explore. Yeah, you can't live with your door closed and your mind closed. You just you can't be of any assistance to the people around you if you're not taking in the lessons that are there for you to take. They're right there in front of you. You're spot on, but you got to go out and experience them. And exactly. I've worked for many leaders, many leaders who do what you say. You know, we have to bring information to them. Always come see me. 
you know, I, I, what I do, I do a couple things. One, if when I get in a room and there's a big table, I never sit at the end. I always sit in the middle. And sometimes they'll say, no, 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 you need to go to the end because you're the person in charge or whatever. I'm like, no, 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 I'll sit in the middle with, with everybody else. I don't want that, that idea that somehow I'm separate and different and above other people. If I have the opportunity to redo office space, I never do a rectangular table. You want to do an oval one or you want to do a round one. That way nobody is actually at the, quote, head of the table. Um, so there are things like that you can do to make sure people appreciate uh, that you're not trying to set yourself above them. And make them nervous. You know, when you're going yeah, into a meeting, everybody <laughs> is nervous anyway. That's right. I mean, when I had to be in meetings, I was always the closest to the door. I didn't care where the door was. I was right in front of it. So I could get the heck out of there if I needed to. But, yeah, it's it's kind of crazy. So let's talk. We've got, oh, well, I tell you, this is the fastest 60 minutes in the world. Overcoming adversity. Give us some examples of times that you or your company had an oh crap moment where you had to just overcome it. Well, yeah, on a, on a personal level, I think, as you acknowledged earlier, I do have this uh, disease called Charcot-Marie Tooth Disease, or, or CMT. It's a, right. it's a neurological disorder that is a lifelong challenge. Uh, it's a bit of a muscle-wasting disease, and it's a lifelong challenge. And, you know, having that definitely influenced my leadership skills uh, in, in some ways. I think having that um, adversity in my own, myself really made me, want to work harder probably than most and, and as a way to compensate for that. Um, I wanted to prove that I had no, no limitations, if you will. But it also gave me compassion, I think, for others. It allowed me to function with a lot more humility than I might have functioned uh, with um, without, without the disease. So it had its pluses and minuses. I would say the one thing that I had to overcome, and this took, this took a lifetime of, uh, of overcoming, was, you know, because of this disease, I chose to be very non-transparent about it. I was like, you know what, this is my problem. I'm going to keep it to myself. I'm, I'm fine. I can do everything. And I am fine, and I can do pretty much everything. Um, but that lack of transparency probably translated into a lack of authenticity. And what I came to understand is that people really want to work for leaders that are truly authentic, 100% authentic, the good, the bad, because they've got – We've all got good and bad attributes, right? We've all had success and failures in life. And the ability to acknowledge that, I think, really is, is humbling in many, in many respects. So I had to learn over time that vulnerability can actually be a strength and not a weakness. I always thought of it as a weakness. You know, my parents were very clear. If you don't talk about this, this is your issue, and I want you to be hurt because you've, you've got this difference or whatever. Um, but ultimately, I realized that people are looking for authenticity out of other people and that being more transparent would be a useful thing and being a bit more vulnerable at times actually makes you a stronger leader, not a weaker leader. But that was a learned behavior. That was not something that, that was innate for me. Same here. I mean, I, we grew up thinking, you know, you just personal is personal. I still think that. You know, personal is yeah. personal. You don't yeah. talk about your, whatever's going on. You just, you know. Keep it quiet. And, look, I have up until maybe 10, 15 years ago, I didn't want to be vulnerable. Nobody's business was taken wrong. I mean, they need to know who I am, who you are, what we're up to, how we can help them, you know, and what maybe some of our struggles are. Not all of them. Nobody wants to listen to a whiner. I'll tell you that right now. There's a difference between being vulnerable and just whining all the time. So, you know, you have to walk that that very thin line. But you're right. We want to know who you're – and my friend Ben Gay says this all the time, Ben Gay the third. People want to do business with or do life with that people that they know, like, trust, and feel comfortable with. And if they can sense that you're hiding something that's probably pretty big, they're not comfortable. They don't know why they're not comfortable, but they're not. He's 100% correct. I mean, that's, those are the filters I use for my friendships and, and my relationships, both business and personal. Um, and I, I think that's incredibly important that 
uh, again, I use the word authenticity a lot. I think people follow authentic leaders and they can sniff out those that, that aren't authentic in some way. Absolutely. Peter, before we, well, we've got about 10 more minutes. I'm looking at the clock going, gosh, this is going fast. Let's talk about ethical leadership before we have to you know, get off the phone here. Yeah, uh, for sure. I mean, it's one of the foundational elements of, of certainly my style, but it, uh, of most leaders' style. Let's, let's be honest. Most leaders want to do the right thing. And, you know, the definition of an ethical leader is doing the right thing when no one else is looking, right? I mean, that's, that's sort of the idea that doesn't matter whether it's going to be noticed or not. You're, you're, you're doing, the right, doing the right thing. And I, I agree with that. I think that's a good, a good way to think about it. Uh, again, I go back a little bit to, to this idea of authenticity. I go back to this idea that, you know, leaders need to operate in a way that, you know, if, if the, you know, it's the Wall Street Journal test, we used to call it. It's like, okay, if you're going to take this action, are you comfortable with it being on the front page of the Wall Street Journal tomorrow? If you are, then it's probably okay, probably an okay action for you to take. It may have consequences that you might have to repair, but it's an okay action for you to take. If you're not comfortable with it being on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, you probably ought to think twice uh, about, about whether, you're, whether you're doing it or not. So this idea of an integrity, I think, is at, at the cornerstone. It's at the foundation of, of every leader in, in one form or another. And we've seen unethical leaders. I've seen them. I, I've worked with some quite candidly who – would you know lie? Who would who would tell an untruth to get ahead? Who would you know crawl over somebody um, to to get uh, a momentary advantage? And candidly, it's just unbecoming. It's just unbecoming, um, quite honestly. And, and again, people can see can see right through that. So so I think you know at the foundation of of friendships, of of leadership, of life, is ethics. And and that's not a, a biblical sense. That's just that's where it all starts. Because if you can't start there, then I don't know what you build on, on top of. There, there's nothing really to build on top of. That is the foundation upon which you, you can build. Exactly. I'm still in your book, Peter. And I'm, I had written this down and I put a sticky note on it. And I wanted to ask you about developing emergent talent with fences. And we've got talent wars going on all over the place. And I think that's a pretty important topic for now and here and now. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll start with a story. Um, I've got lots of stories, but um, this, I'll make it brief. So when I was at Fidelity, I was asking my boss to move to Cincinnati, and I said no. And he came back and he said, I thought I told you to move to Cincinnati. I said, yeah, okay, I'll do it. So long story short, um, he, he was a great boss, and he, was, he pretty much was kind of left me alone to do what it is I wanted to do. So he, um, he would come down to Cincinnati, if not every week, quite frequently. And he would come down, sit in his office, read the paper, put his feet up, make a few phone calls, maybe walk around the floor and then go home, fly back to Boston. And I always thought that was quite curious uh, in terms of what he was, he was doing. Um, but you know what? That was fine. Um, then a couple of years later, we finished the job. He invited me to move back to Boston for a bigger role, all good. One night I'm at a cocktail party. I'm talking to his boss, so Fred's boss, Mark, and Mark says to me, and to think, we put you down there in Cincinnati and didn't think you could do the job. Ow. And now I'm sitting there like, what did you just say? (laughs) And Mark was smart enough and perceptive enough to realize he had said something that he maybe shouldn't have and moved on to another topic. So the next day I walked into Fred's office and I said, Fred, you have to level with me. Like, what? what happened? I don't understand what, what Mark was talking about last night. And he said, what are you worried about? It all worked out, right? I said, yeah, it worked out terrific. And he said, you grew and you learned and you got a great promotion and all that. Said, yeah, yeah, that's all true. But, but what was this all about? And I stopped him kind of mid-sentence and I said, I get it. I get it. You didn't come down to Cincinnati every week because you thought I needed help. You had confidence in me. You were coming down to give them confidence, the other members of the leadership team, that you were there if something was going to go off the rails. And he looked at the floor, and he's like, yeah, so, so take that as a lesson. And, and I then built this idea that you have to take risks on young people. You have to take risks on emerging talent. But the quid pro quo in doing that is, is that you have to build a fence around them. You have to try and make sure they don't fail 
because failure, people say failure is a great teacher, and it is. I get it. In an entrepreneurial context, I get it. Um, you know, in San Francisco, in Silicon Valley, it's a badge of honor to have failed three times because it enhances your learning, and I understand that. But in a corporate context, failure can be very devastating, very, very devastating. So my leadership practice has generally been not just with, with the emerging leaders but with all leaders to, to sort of let them roam around the landscape and make the decisions they think are appropriate for them to make, but put a fence around them, put some borders around them, because I think it's really important to make sure that as they approach that border, that you ask questions and pull them back. So I would do this regularly. It's like, hey, you've got a lot of freedom to do what it is you need to do within these principles, within these constructs, against this strategy or whatever. But sometimes I'd see behavior or I'd see decisions and I'd be like, you know what, I don't, I don't know if that's right. And so as they approach that fence, I would pull them back. And I'd say, can we have a conversation about why you're thinking of making that decision? Or can we have a discussion about what you're, what you're about to, to do? Just to convince me that this is the right thing. And people really respond well to that sort of coaching and that sort of mentoring. Um, so, look, I have a saying that near failure is a better teacher than actual failure. And I believe yeah. that in the, I believe that yeah, in the context of, of corporations because you get all the learning done right. You get all the learning, you get all the knowledge without all the emotional baggage that can come with real failure. So when you're, when you're talking with people like this, that you're inside the fence with them saying, okay, explain this to me, convince me. Have you had, I'm sure you have had probably a silly question, but what has happened when you were in, in a conversation and said, no, we can't do that? When I, uh, I thought we shouldn't do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so what, what generally happens uh, in these instances is when I ask my questions and I, I'll ask probing questions, explain to me, convince me this is the right thing to do, they end up, generally, they end up convincing themselves that maybe this isn't the right course to take or we need to do a little bit more research or we need to get better facts and data before we make the decision. I mean, I would say 25% of the time they convince me and it's like, go, go do it. I get it. I didn't understand uh, what you were thinking. 75% of the time it at least causes them to pause. It causes them to reassess and we end up with a slightly different approach than they might have taken without the challenge. It's that curiosity again. It's important. People really don't understand how curiosity is not invasive if you're, being, if you're doing it right. It really is, in your case, there to help. Absolutely. That is the goal of a leader. You know, I like to say that the best leaders can't really be judged while they're leading. They get judged once they're gone. And if everything continues to run swimmingly and it's all terrific and you had a succession plan and the strategy was on point, boy, you were a heck of a leader. If you built that organization and you built the successor, that's terrific. I look at Howard Schultz, who, who has run Starbucks now a sum total of three times, literally three times. And he's, had, he's been the CEO. He left. He felt like he had to come back because the next person failed. He left. He came back three times. I don't see that as a sign of a great leader. I didn't say he wasn't a visionary. I didn't say he wasn't capable. But one of the things he clearly didn't do well was build a succession plan and build a deep bench. And I fault him for that. Well, it makes sense. I mean, if you have to keep coming back, something is not complete. Something is missing. Yeah, you don't judge the success or failure of a leader while they're in the job. You judge it after they leave. And that makes perfect sense. Peter, before I let you go, is there anything else you would like to share with our audience? It's been a pleasure, Denise, as, as it was the first time. Um, you know, I would enjoy hearing from your audience uh, to the extent they've read Taking Stock, 10 Life and Leadership Principles from my seat at the table. Uh, please feel free to reach out to me. Uh, my uh, website is peterjdesilva.com. Um, there's an email function in there, so if you'd like to email me a message or a question, please feel free to do so. Um, if you're a group that uh, would like a speaker to talk about leadership and ethical leadership, I'd be more than happy to consider that as well. And, again, you can reach me through peterjdesilva.com. Peter, thank you so much for coming back a second time. Um, like I said earlier, I knew we were only a few minutes and you needed to come back. So I really appreciate you taking the time 
And I appreciate all of the wonderful and the terrific tips and advice that you share with the audience. I've been scribbling notes like a crazy person. So for our audience, as we wrap up today's episode, please stop, go find Peter, read the book. And like I said, go to page 222, I think it was, and then work your way back from there. It's an excellent, excellent book, but that the afterward is for me, that was the biggest part of the book. So if you would, once you found him and gotten his book or left him a note, tell him you know, how much you enjoyed hearing him. Stop by uh, iTunes and leave us a review over there. Just subscribe, review, and share your part in Success Radio. And thank you for tuning in, and I look forward to catching you on the next episode. Peter, again, thank you so much. Thank you, Denise. I look forward to seeing you again soon. Get your voice heard. If you would like to launch your own far-reaching podcast, contact Denise Griffiths at yourofficeontheweb.com and go to the podcast tab. 